This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can be with us. If you have specific questions as it relates to understanding a biblical passage, its application, or you're looking for biblical counsel, that's why we're here for the next hour. And by God's grace, we will do our best to respond to questions you have. There's several ways that you can get those questions to us. You can call directly, as Rick just gave those numbers. And the 843 exchange is uh, 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. If you do call, you can dictate your question, though if you go on live, we do give priority to live callers. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, very good, Doctor. Uh, A listener by the name of Monica understands her position in Christ, uh, according to Ephesians 1. But she says, I'm not sure about experientially. Is that my daily walk? what I do with what I have been given. Thank you. Well, it's a good question, and the New Testament would make a distinction between what we would call a positional truth versus an experiential truth. A positional truth is something that's true of you by virtue of the fact that you've received Jesus as your Lord. An experiential truth is something that God wants you to apply as a Christian. The example that immediately comes to mind of the the dichotomy between these two, the difference between the two, would be uh, second, uh, First Timothy in, in chapter 4. He specifically says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now, did Timothy have a spiritual gift? Yes, he did. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. As each one has received a special gift, employ it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So in 1 Peter 4.12, he assumes every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And that's clear in the four major passages that address this subject, 2.4s, 2.12s, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. All those texts teach that if you've been born again on your spiritual birthday, not only did God give you the Holy Spirit to indwell you, but the Holy Spirit gave you a specific capacity, at least one, in which to serve the body of Christ. But just because you have one doesn't mean you're using it. And that's why he's exhorting him. Don't neglect the use of your spiritual gift. Over in the next epistle makes a very similar statement. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh. I think the King James says, stir up. Stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So when they laid hands on Timothy, it was an affirmation that he was called of God to serve the living God as a pastor. 
and why would he need to be admonished to use the gift? Probably for the simple reason that being young in the ministry, he might have at times felt somewhat intimidated in the exercise of that spiritual gift, and God wanted him to use it. And so everyone listening to me that has known Christ as their Savior, you have a gift. That's your position. Uh, That speaks of one of hundreds of positional truths in the New Testament. But are you using that gift? Or think of it in the realm of forgiveness. Uh, We were addressing this issue on Sunday. And in Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt to consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so we discussed the fact that when you are a believer, all of your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. I mean, if you think of it just logically, when Christ died, you weren't even alive. All of your sin was in the future. Yet Christ died for each and every sin that you and I have ever committed. And so when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible teaches you are justified. Uh, It's a word that doesn't simply mean just as if you never sinned, but just as if you had always obeyed. So not only does God wipe the slate clean, he credits to your account Christ's righteousness. And so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint. Well, Paul uses this imagery of a first century Um, prison where you had a certificate of debt outside the door of your cell or if you're under house arrest outside of the home and on it was your crime and when you had paid your debt to the government they would remove your certificate of debt and they would actually write on it the word that Jesus shouted from the cross that they would also write on tax collector bills when you paid your tax to telestai we have some ancient copies of these that have been dug up by archaeologists that supernaturally, I suppose, have been preserved of God. And they wrote the word tetelestai. And it's a Greek word that means paid in full. We translated it as finished. So God removed the certificate of debt that was hostile to us. Why? Because the decrees of God, the laws of God that we have all broken, condemned us. Uh, Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in yet one point has become guilty of all. And so uh, God's removed it. He's nailed it to the cross. So when you receive Jesus, you're justified. That's positional. Experientially, God wants you to exercise that truth. And so you have verses like uh, 1 John 1, 9 or Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, uh, confessional Psalms or that confessional verse, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when the scripture speaks of confessing, it's not to receive salvation. Uh, that's done the moment you exercise faith in Christ. And some, uh, unfortunately, uh, take that verse out of context. They'll say, if you're not a Christian, just be sorry, ask God to forgive you, and he'll forgive you. No, God has to have a basis by which he can forgive you, and it's not confession. Not in reference to justification, it's the cross of Christ, and so the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But 1 John 1, 9 is written to people who are already saved. My little children, I'm writing these things to you, John will say. Why? That you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus, his Son. And so the Bible, again, makes that distinction between my relationship and my fellowship, my position and my experience. 
in terms of my relationship, God is my father. He's no longer my judge. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm a child of God. I'm justified. That's my new position. But when I sin, while I cannot sever that relationship because it's an eternal relationship that's unbroken, God no more abandons us than we would abandon our children, at least if we're decent parents. And if we are evil and we know how to show love to our kids, how much more does God, who's infinitely love, know how to take care of his children? And so, again, 1 John 1, 9 is not dealing with union, but communion. It's not dealing with relationship, but with intimacy with God. That's an experiential truth. So, um, you mentioned you understand a lot of experiential truths from Ephesians 1, and that's good. Ephesians is an interesting book, even in, in, in and of itself. And so, in Ephesians 1, it says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And all the way through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he deals with all these different positional truths that is true if you are in Christ. And really, the simplest definition of a believer in the New Testament is you're in Christ. You're identified with him because you've received him as Lord. But then, experientially, he starts chapter 4 and verse 1, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? In light of what he has just unfolded in the first three chapters, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's just described our calling in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with what we believe, whereas chapters 4 through 6 deal with how we behave. So that's really the outline of Ephesians in a nutshell. One deals with position, the other with experience. That's a great question. Appreciate you asking it today. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And Pam from Virginia Beach, Virginia writes, what does it mean to speak truth to power? It's actually an old phrase that come from the Quakers. Uh, The Quakers at one time were... Well, they always had a few odd beliefs. You know, they didn't typically have a pastor. They sometimes uh, were more driven by experience than they were by doctrine. Uh, some some of the old Quakers would get up and they'd shake and so on and so forth. But uh, But there are actually a few good Quaker churches that are left. But for the most part today, Quakers are totally apostate. They have left the faith once delivered by the apostles They no longer believe the Bible that they once described. And so uh, the Quaker church a few years ago came out and said, well, homosexuality is no different than being left-handed. In other words, it's just the way God made you. Well, I'm left-handed, and I take objection to that. But in either case, uh, no, it's a moral issue. It has nothing to do with the way God made you. But that's, of course, where we're going. But the Quakers would say, well, you, you stand up for what's right, and you tell people in charge what's what's. And, and, and that's really behind the phrase, speak truth uh, to power. To those powers, to those authorities over you, you are to address them. And that's good. That's what John the Baptist did, and certainly that's what God's men are called to do. We're to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction but um, the Quakers don't really do that today. They may stand up and say, what's what, and say, well, you should be passing laws that uh, esteem transgender and homosexual behavior. Obviously, that's uh, not the guidance that we find in Scripture. So when we speak truth, 
The truth has to be found in the 66 books of the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less. That's all we need. And so while the phrase may have some good historical merit, when it came out, I think it was in the 1950s, if I remember. Uh, you don't hear it used that much. But again, it has Quaker origin. But, but still, by that time, the Quakers were pretty much social gospel people. By social gospel, we mean that the call that God has on his people is not to preach the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, but it's to try to uh, reshape the church societally, uh, that we're try to, we try to feed the poor, we try to clothe the naked, we try to educate the ignorant, that that's the call that God has given us to try to change society. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. That's not what we're called to do. Now, we might be feeding the poor in some instances if it gives us a platform in which to share Christ and to tell a person how they can be forgiven. But to feed an empty stomach and not to give them the truth of the gospel is really to do a great injustice. And on the other hand, to try to give the gospel to an empty stomach that can't hear, uh, we need to show the love of Christ indeed. Uh, and in works that we do, as um, John will underscore in his epistle. So there's this balance. We, there are social issues that are moral issues that the church is called to address, but our goal is not to reform society. That's like trying to shine the brass on the Titanic as it goes under the water. You can spend a lot of time and effort. And sadly, today we have too many missionaries who are planting trees and digging wells without sharing the gospel passionately, and we need to do both. I I have a friend who uh, came by my house on Sunday, and he was uh, leaving for Haiti the next day, and we talked a little bit about it, and he has a lot of skills to be able to build things, make things, and he says, you know, I don't want him to know about all the skills that I have because they'll have me investing all my time there and only doing that where I want to share the gospel. And I said, of course, that's what Haiti needs they need the gospel. It's the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And one of the reasons it's so poor is it's covered over with false theology, with demonism and witchcraft and voodoo, and that affects the people and what they are like and how they invest their lives. The answer to the problems in Haiti is not more money. Uh, time and effort has shown that doesn't work. Uh, there may be a place for it, but the primary goal of the church should be to preach Christ. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and a reminder that if you did have a question and didn't get an answer or didn't get a chance to hear it all, that you can always go back to our website at wagp.net, click on the archives for the Bible line, and there you'll be able to listen to not only today's, but all the previous Bible lines. LaShawn from Ohio just called in. She has a situation where she really needs your advice. She has a daycare service at her church where she's been renting space for five years. Her pastor said he was going to renew her lease, so she hired staff, bought all the supplies, and was ready to open after COVID. But her pastor has now told her he's opening, he is opening a daycare there. We know a Christian should not use a, uh, sue a Christian, so what should she do? Well, it's a good question, LaShawn, and I think there needs to be some soul-searching here on both sides of the equation. One, why are you in the daycare service? 
sadly, today, a lot of churches are in the daycare business because they can generate revenue for their local assembly. But sometimes in doing so, they're actually putting forth a model and an example that's antithetical to Scripture. The Bible says that a woman should be a worker at home. In other words, God doesn't want you to have a baby, stay at home for six weeks or eight weeks or however long so many of these companies will pay you, and then you put the baby in daycare and uh, you drop the child off at you know, 6.30, 7.30, 8 a.m., depending on your job, and pick the baby up at 3.30, 4.30, or 5.30, depending on your job, and you're not there all day with the child. No, God's plan as a woman is to be a worker at home. And that's no small task. That's a great task. The job of a dad is to earn the money. But you see, we live in a culture where we want in a short period of time what it took a prior generation maybe 20 years to get. We want the new cars. We want the big house. We want the brand new gleaming furniture when there are other priorities that are of a much higher need and the higher need is to raise those children at home. Now, I have a message. You can listen to it online. Uh, it's from my series on First Timothy, and I deal with the f- subject, really, where, where, are, where are all the mothers? Where are they today? And, you know, for a pastor to stand up in the pulpit and say what I just said is going to alienate some people, and they're going to immediately leave, and that's why a lot of pastors won't say what I just said because they don't want to lose a member. And certainly some of these women who have jobs, sometimes more high paying than the dad, you know, as long as they tithe, that's all we want. And that's why we have approximately 80% of the children who when they graduate from high school and get off into college, they walk away from the faith. Why? They've never really genuinely been converted. And that's sad. And many times it's because we have jettisoned God's model for the family in terms of what a dad is supposed to do and what a mother is to do. Now, LaShawn, I would say to you, if you or your pastor had a daycare center, and sometimes we put a fancy term on it, we call it a learning center or this or that to make it sound less daycare or Christian learning center. But if you or your pastor had such a center for single mothers who had no choice, and look, my hat is off to any woman who has to work to put food on the table and there are special situations in the assumption that Paul makes when he addresses the role of, you know, husbands and wives in the home. Um, when he says that a woman should be a worker at home, uh, when Titus, Paul writes, you know, older women giving younger women instruction, but so many older women today are out in the workforce, so they don't have any time for younger women because they're off uh, making money and not building into the lives of the next generation. But older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. All right, what's the curriculum? Well, that they might encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So there is an an assumption here that they have a husband and they have children. And so if you're married and you have children, you're to be a worker at home. And uh, ergos oikos. Uh, Ergos is the word for work. 
Uh, oikos is the word for home. Uh, if we spoke of an ergos ampel, that would be a, a vine worker or usually translated a farmer in scripture. Where does a farmer work? Where does a, he works, he works in the field. He works in the vineyard. Where does an ergos oikos work? A home worker. She works at home. That's not to say she can't earn money from the home or anything like that. Proverbs 31 is an illustration not of a woman jettisoning her responsibilities at home, but using her home as a platform in which to earn money. But when you give up the responsibility of those children for someone else to to be raising them, and look, when you're gone eight hours and you come back, you're exhausted, but because you're a mom and God has written that into your DNA, then automatically you're going to be driven to do a second job to make sure that home is right, the meals are are made well. And you do that long enough, you have enough children, and exhaustion sets in, uh, the marriage begins to break down, someone goes off to work, and the guy at work is sweet and doesn't have to live with this woman, listens to her, Before you know it, a flirtatious relationship begins to develop that turns into adultery and the home breaks down. And so we have approximately a 50% divorce rate in evangelicalism. Is that by accident? No, it's not by accident. It's because we have ignored and broken God's principles. So I would say that if you or your pastor had a daycare center to minister to single moms only. But you know what? I don't know of a daycare center in America that says we're here just for single moms. There may be one, but I don't know of one. I've never heard of one. And we're doing a great disservice when churches open up these daycare centers. And when you open up a daycare center that is encouraging moms not to be principally over their children, but to go off to work. And think about it, too, as they get older and these children become of school age. And, of course, what does the government want to do? Well, the new administration that's in office, they want to make K-3 mandatory. Why? Because they want to take your children away earlier and earlier and earlier. And they will probably get K-4 mandatory before they leave office if things keep going the way they are. Why? Because they don't want your children in your home. They want to indoctrinate those children as, as young as possible. And there's a whole generation of children that are being prepared for the Antichrist. So we've ignored God's principles. So you ask a question, is it wrong for a Christian to sue another Christian? And the answer is yes. But your question that, you know, originates out of 1 Corinthians, where Paul gives, you know, very pointed advice as to why. Um, He says, does does any one of you whom he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts. Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in this church, in the church? I say this is to your shame. So you had Christians suing Christians when they should have, instead of going before unbelievers, Instead of the, the, the world settling their problems, they should have brought the problems to the church. There should have been an in-house court. And really, if there was an in-house court 
at this pastor's church or your church than if there was godly leadership, but there's not much left anymore. They would say, hey, look, you know, you're both wrong. Pastor, why are we opening a daycare center to create a model that's antithetical to what God's Word teaches? And LaShawn, why are you engaged in a business that's encouraging women to leave their place at home uh, in order to um, provide care for their little ones? So you're both wrong. And that's the kind of leadership that really needs. That's probably not the answer you wanted to hear, LaShawn. And I would just say to you as well that um, rather than even have a daycare center just for single moms, a preferred situation would be rather than an institutionalized setting where I don't know how many children you have, 10 or 12 in a room, it would be a much better thing for that single mom to find another mother or an older woman who would take care of her baby in a home setting rather than an institutional setting. So you should be in another business. Take all the air out of the balloon. That's what you should do. Very good. 843-525-1859. And Samuel just called in. He says, 1 Corinthians 8.4 addresses the eating of things sacrificed to idols. And Paul is not against that. However, in the Revelation Uh, Chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus says eating such meat is a stumbling block. We know there are no contradictions in the Bible, so please explain. Well, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is dealing with uh, a problem. He says, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So they had certain knowledge, and some of them in their knowledge didn't exercise that knowledge and love. And in the process, they just became puffed up. Or arrogant. And of course, his argument is, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so his point is, is that, look, there's no such thing as an idol. So a man can carve a piece of wood, and he can uh, offer a sacrifice to it, but there's really no such thing as an idol. So here's the situation that happened. People would go to these idol worship temples, and if they were a pious worshiper, they wouldn't bring some, you know, scanty sacrifice. They'd bring their best because they wanted to please their false god. And uh, they would take a portion of uh, the animal that was presented. Uh, it was offered to this false god. And what did they do with the rest of the meat? They sold it out back in an idol worship, so to speak, meat market. And so Paul's point is, is that, you know, we need to exercise wisdom and love uh, when we, you know, buy meat, when we buy food. And so if you're parading your knowledge, hey, look, there's no such thing as an idol. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this meat. Why should I be bent out of shape? And you are maybe addressing a brother who's weaker in conscience. Paul deals with this in Romans 14 where he deals with people who, because of the way they were raised or the background they were saved out of, there are some issues that they are weaker in conscience in. And Paul says, look, my goal is not to cause a brother to stumble. 
whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Uh, we're not to do anything that causes my brother to stumble, Romans 14 teaches. And Jesus is echoing that same truth. Now, we could spend a whole hour just on this, but you can also underscore from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, look, you, you go to someone's house and um, some meat is presented to you, you enjoy it, you eat it. But if they say, hey, this came from an idol-worshiping temple, uh, Paul talks about, look, behind that sometimes can be demons. And demons can work behind idols. There's no such thing as an idol. But there are demons that work behind idols that make it very, very real. There's no such thing. Uh, this is a question that came in a few weeks ago about life on other planets. And people were asking about all these UFOs being sighted. There's no such thing as there's life out there on other planets. And this alien life is flying at high speeds, you know, out there in the universe. But there is such a thing as demons. And demons can manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. And they can travel quickly. Daniel underscores that truth. And I think probably if indeed what they are seeing is not any man-made object from this earth, that what they're probably seeing are demonic manifestations, which probably is setting up the world for what's to come. You know, when the church is raptured and all these millions and millions of Christians across the planet are gone, I mean, what are they going to say when you have this particular subset, this particular group within the vastness of humanity. What can they say? Well, that's what they said. They said their God was going to come and and sweep them up. Are they going to teach that? Of course not. But they'll say, you know, there's life on other planets. And they saw this group as a troublesome group and that these people needed to be removed. And thank God they're all gone now. You know, that's probably more that's going to be the message that's tied to it. So what you might want to do, too, is I have taught through the whole book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and what the seven churches found in chapters 2 and 3, I gave a whole hour-long message to each church, and I walked through uh, Jesus' comments in detail. So there's no, there's no contradiction here. Paul talks about not creating a stumbling block as well in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10. So all things are lawful, but not everything is profitable. Let's go to the next thing. 843-525-1859. And our next caller wants to know if someone is divorced and marries someone else, and then they become a Christian, should this person divorce their second husband to marry back their first husband? Oh, the answer is definitively, absolutely no. And uh, let me give you a passage that would underscore this. And it's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, here we read, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And by the way, the indecency um, that Moses speaks of was a highly debated verse in Jesus's day. And so in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And one school, the more liberal school, said that the indecency could be anything that you could think of. Your wife put on too much weight. She burns the food. You don't like the tone of her voice. So you find some indecency and you can put her away. Uh, The other more conservative school said, no, there was some uh, sexual... 
uh, deviance that had happened in her life. She had been immoral, so you can divorce her. And of course, Jesus carries it way above that and goes past both schools and reminds us of how tight marriage was in God's original plan. In either case, uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it, uh, puts her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. God is simply saying that, look, uh, marriage is to be permanent, and if you could just write these certificates of divorce, which were never in God's original plan, when the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him in Mark 19, it's also recorded in Matthew, uh, Mark um, 10 in Matthew 19, testing him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Again, the debate is over Deuteronomy 24. He answered and said, well, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And by the way, there's no transgenderism here. God creates you male and female, uh, one or the other, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. They are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? We're talking about the passage we just read. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. And so God allowed some things under the hardness of heart, under the old covenant, where the relationship of the believer in an unbelieving world to the Holy Spirit was far different than it is on this side of Golgotha. And so when God describes the new covenant, in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'll take your heart of stone and I'll, I'll turn it into a heart of flesh that's pliable, that's soft, that's flexible. And so under the old covenant, you could have more than one wife. It was not God's design, but if you did, it didn't mean that you were going to die and go to hell because David was one such example and you're going to meet him in heaven someday. But still, because of the hardness of man's heart, because of the different kind of relationship they had prior to forgiveness by which we could be indwelt and become a temple of the Holy Spirit, God permitted certain things. But even under this permission, and again, it was an allowance. It was an allowance that God gave. He said, <clears throat> they asked him the question, uh, why then did Moses command to give her a certic certificate of divorce? This is a command, they say. And Jesus said, no, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. And so there's a difference between those two words. He never commanded it. He permitted it, again, because of the hardness of heart. But again, even it is regulated. So if you're married and you put your wife away and you marry again, and then you want to go back to your first wife, if you do that, you can basically have a legal form of adultery. Well, I think I'll... 
you know, get rid of this model and I'll try the new model. And if I don't like the new model, I can go back to the old model and everything's hunky dory and I haven't done anything to violate the word of God. And God says to do that is an abomination. Look, I can promise you anything, anything that you can find in the Old Testament that God calls an abomination was not time-bound to the Old Testament. When God says, for a man to lie with a man is an abomination, for a man to lie with an animal is an abomination, every time you see the word abomination, it has full application for the age in which we are in as well. So I hope that will uh, answer your question. Thank you so much. Let's go to the next one. So we had a similar since we're on this subject, a similar question. K.M. from Bolton, Massachusetts, wants to know, if a woman was divorced prior to salvation, does that disqualify her from being able to marry a saved man once she becomes saved? Well, understand there's a difference between forgiveness and action. There's a difference between forgiveness and lifestyle. So God can forgive anyone. But of course, while I'm here in Matthew 19, let me just keep reading because again, there's two schools of thought that are being debated in Jesus's day. And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. And then listen to the disciples' response. If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to be married. In other words, Jesus, you're not agreeing with either school of thought. Remember, the text says they came here testing him. They're trying to find out whose side is he on. And he doesn't take either side. He takes it way above any school of theology of the day. And the disciples say, well, if it's like this, maybe we should just never get married. If you've made it this tight, that only death can sever the relationship, then, uh, you know, uh, wow, maybe I should just never get married. And by the way, I should say, if you read a text like Luke 16, 18, you have similar advice. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And then if you read Mark chapter 10, and I need to underscore that marriage is not simply a Christian institution. It's certainly should be a picture of Christ's love for his church. But it is not purely a Christian institution. It's a human institution that God established on creation. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. He's quoting Genesis. What's he talking about? What does Adam know about leaving a father and mother when he's the first man created? He knows that he doesn't have a father or mother in the traditional sense, neither he nor Eve. And so what's happening, God is establishing marriage. Now, what's fascinating is when you read Mark's account that is written to Roman Gentiles, there is no exception clause. He just says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. There's no exception, but there is an exception that's found in Matthew because they practiced what was called betrothal, and when you were betrothed, you were considered husband and wife, and there are four Old Testament examples, one in the New Testament where Joseph is called the husband of Mary, but he had had no physical relationship. So 
unlike engagement, betrothal is a lot tighter. Um, and so he's going to put her away. He's going to divorce her of being a righteous man when he finds out that she's pregnant because he assumes she has violated God's law. And being a righteous man, he felt like he could not take her to be his wife. Um, so that's, I think, what the exception refers to. If during the betrothal period someone is immoral, then the relationship that had not yet been sealed physically by the couple can be broken off. And that's why there's two different words. He doesn't say except for adultery and marries another commits adultery, but except for porneia, immorality, fornication, depending on your English text, and marries another commits moikeia. And so he's referring to specifically sex during the betrothal period. And that's what they said of Jesus in John 8. We weren't born of porneia. We weren't born of fornication. In other words, the reason you're here is because Mary was immoral during the betrothal period. And so... You know, Mary had to walk through a lot of hard things in her life. 30 years later, um, what was rumored in Nazareth, that she was pregnant out of wedlock, stuck, and they were still accusing Jesus of it 30 years later. In other words, there is no exception today. So what do you do? You can't unscramble eggs. I'd say probably half the people in our church are in second marriages. You can't unscramble eggs. And many times people don't know Christ and they don't know God's standards when they get married. It has nothing to do with whether you're forgiven, saved, or lost. Um, it's like um, a man to be qualified for the office of elder must be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. That has nothing to do with polygamy. Oh, one woman at a time. Married to one. A, a polygamist in the New Testament age, not only was it against Roman law, secular law, it was against God's law. And such a person wouldn't even be considered a member of a church if he had multiple wives. Um, So when he speaks of the husband of one wife, he's not like Catholics who, of course, they don't marry. They're priests, they're bishops, they're cardinals, and he's married to the church. Then you spiritualize the text and you abuse it. Oh, one woman kind of man in his heart. No, he's already dealt with self-control. He's talking about the husband of one wife. Real simple, just a plain reading of Scripture, and the reverse phrase is used of a woman who should be considered for care in the local assembly, and that's one of the qualifications. God, again, he's not against anyone who's on a second or third marriage. I just recently introduced a man to Christ and said, now, how many times have you been married? And finally he came out and he said, five times, five times. I'm on my fifth wife right now. And uh, he received Christ and he was forgiven. And his wife received the Lord, and she's been forgiven. Can't unscramble eggs, can't go back and undo it, but she can go forward from here, and that's what you want to do. Look, if I told you that God can forgive something, is that a justification to violate his law? If I told you God can forgive an abortion, well, you know, we only wanted to have three kids, and now we got this fourth one, and let's go jettison this child. After all, God can forgive me. No, you never, ever presume on the grace of God. The grace of God instructs us who have been saved by it to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So you don't reason, well, God can just forgive me, and so I'm going to do it anyway. No, that, that, that's really hardening your heart towards God. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps, and you might, um, well, you might want to listen to my message on Romans chapter 7. I think I 
cover this issue in Romans 7, 1 through 4. All right. Very good. All right. Navid would like to know if the Trinity is an essential part of the faith, why God didn't mention it in the Jewish Bible? Well, God did mention it in the Jewish Bible. Um, Right in the beginning, in the opening verse of the Scripture, um, God makes this statement, In the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. And it's an interesting verse. In the beginning, God, and it's the word Elohim, and it's in the plural. So it's a plural noun. In the beginning, God, so to speak, um, though we affirm one God, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Now, that's a, it, that just kind of jumps off the page of Scripture. Why would you use a plural noun with a singular verb? Because of the tri-unity of God. In fact, in verse 24 of this chapter, then God said, um, uh, excuse me, verse 26, let us, then God said, let us make man in our image. Again, using a plural pronoun. Who's the us? Who's the our? Well, it's the other members of the Godhead. And so in Job, for instance, the Spirit of God is credited with the creation of the world. In the book of Colossians, Christ is created, credited with the creation of the world. Who created the world? Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all engaged in the creation of the world. And so what you find in kernel form is the doctrine of the Trinity, even in the opening verse of the Bible. And so when you say, well, the Trinity is not found in the Jewish Bible, well, the word Trinity is not found in the uh, New Testament either. Uh, that's just a theological term from the Latin language to summarize a biblical truth. And so there's a lot of words that especially come from the Latin Bible, which was the principal Bible used for a thousand years in the history of the church. Uh, people read the Latin edition that Jerome had done uh, there while he lived in a cave in Bethlehem. But here's a, here's a verse in Psalm 78. Um, Asaph writes the psalm. It says, Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God, and they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord, he's talking about Yahweh, was, uh, therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. So Asaph says that they've sinned against God, the Most High. He calls him the Lord. We put the article in front of it. It's just one word, Yahweh, so we translate it, the Lord. And yet, interestingly, Isaiah recounts this exact same rebellion in the wilderness that Asaph has just noted in Isaiah 63 in verse 10. And he underscores they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So what you find is in kernel form, all these references to the Spirit being God. So what I would encourage this uh, caller from New York to do is to consider doing a course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the word for spirit. So pneumatology is the study of the spirit. 
and I have a, such a course. And it, it's over 100 pages long. And so part one on pneumatology, which if you go to search the scriptures and type in the word under the search bar pneumatology, you will come up with that course. And if you're interested, there is um, over 100 pages in handouts. But you're going to learn what the Bible says concerning the Holy Spirit in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You refer to in your question the Holy Spirit as it. He is not an it. He is as much God as the as the son or the father he is a person and we talk a little bit about that you don't relate to the holy spirit as a thing or a force he's not a thing or a force he is a person and he's as much god and as much as involved in your salvation as the father or the son so this would be an important study for you pneumatology search the scriptures and Uh, you'll see that he has all the characteristics that only God has, that he is a distinct person in the Godhead. And I think some good Trinitarian theology is in need in our day. The new president of the Southern Baptist Convention had in his own doctrinal statement that um, God is made up of three parts. He's not made up of three parts. He is one God who exists in three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal. And, of course, when people brought that out, within a matter of hours, they changed their doctrinal statement. So my thought is, okay, either he never read his own doctrinal statement, which would be a travesty, and that would not be a good thing, or he was ignorant of the wording that was used in his doctrinal statement and thought it was orthodox, which would tell me he is not really grounded well in Scripture, or third, he believes it. And I fear that the third is the latter position, especially since he came out last year with a sermon that was soft on homosexuality and what God specifically said about it. So not a good thing. Well, while we're on the subject, we just got a call uh, from a person who recently became friends with someone who believes in oneness Pentecostalism, where they believe that Jesus is the Father and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Would you give a specific scripture to show that Jesus is not the Father and is not the Holy Spirit? So, um, Oneness Pentecostals, uh, United Church of God, uh, Armstrongism, as it was called, uh, Unitarians, Unity, Unity School of Christianity, all of these heretically deny the simple doctrine that God is co-equal and co-eternal. But the Bible affirms that each member of the Trinity is equal and exists forever together. Uh, Even in the baptismal formula, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them not in the names, but in the names, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we baptize in the name because there's one God. He doesn't exist in you know, three separate, uh, he doesn't exist in three different parts where the father becomes the son and the son becomes the father. And, and so they say largely in the old Testament that God manifested himself as father in the new Testament, God manifested himself as son. And in this age as the spirit and that the roles can change the modes that they play or take on can change. That's utter heresy. And probably the best-known oneness Pentecostal in our day would be T.D. Jakes. That's heresy. That's a departure 
from Orthodox Christianity. And look, when someone is regenerated by the Spirit of God and they meet the Lord, they have the mind of Christ. And while they may not have everything together, when someone confronts them with the truth from the Scripture and explains it, they're going to receive it. And if they don't receive it, it just means that they're not regenerated by the Spirit. So I would direct this caller again to my course on pneumatology. There's over 100 pages of notes, and you're going to learn everything that the Bible says about the doctrine of the Trinity. Not to mention, you might want to just go to my basic discipleship course if that's a little overwhelming for you because it will take you, you know, I forgot, maybe 20 hours of study to get through those 100 pages of notes. But I did in our basic discipleship course, which is our, basic, which is our discovery class here at Community Bible Church. When someone becomes a Christian, we walk them through the basics of the Christian faith. And it's a 45-week course, and it's structured so someone can start any week they want. But one of the weeks is on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I think I spent like four weeks on that particular handout. And I think that would be very useful to you. It's a lot simpler, a lot more concise. And maybe that's all you would need to um, get started. And we, we, again, we, we deal with this whole issue of a oneness Pentecostalism and what the Scripture says, what the Scripture does not say. And I think that would be helpful. So you can call Search the Scriptures and say, hey, I'm interested in the course on basic discipleship, specifically the course on uh, the handout on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, I think that would that would really be life-changing for you and would help you. That particular handout is just eight pages long, but it will walk you through these issues. Well, we are out of time, but we're so glad that you could join us for today. Our Israel trip is coming to uh, a close in terms of registration. So if you are interested, you really need to register at searchthescriptures.org, and they'll link you to uh, the travel company, Imagine Tours, that we're using. Uh, It closes basically July the 1st. Uh, There might be an exception for a couple days after that, but probably not. The Israeli government has really tight rules because they want to protect their tourists. They want to make sure that you are you and that you're not a danger. That's why they've not lost a single tourist in 40 years. Uh, But in either case, it's a life-changing trip, and you can get more information at Search the Scriptures or simply uh, download the brochure there. Thanks again for being with us today. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 